Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. I must admit, as we go through the book of Psalms, um, you know that we're trying to set to music all 150 of the Psalms. And so our musicians um, are writing music and doing versifications, poetry of these psalms. And so I preach on them. And uh, I've often told you what strength I get from our musicians, um, from their work. When you talk, because there isn't a tune to what you say, and because generally you're not supposed to be aggressive when you talk, but musicians are aggressive. They're in our face, and they demand a response. And so we really should pray for our musicians because a huge part of the strength of our church is our musicians. We don't want them falling into sin. We don't want them uh, denying the faith. We don't want them getting weak because we need their strength so much. Well, so I'm preaching because they're writing. That's why I'm preaching. They're not writing because I'm preaching, but I'm preaching because they're writing, and I'm preaching through the book of Psalms. And every time I come to the next Psalm, I'm, I'm, I have to admit, you know, I've read them many times, but I'm surprised by them. Um, and I think the principal thing I'm surprised by is you just... I don't think in our minds we ever think about Scripture having conflict. You know, we just think of Scripture as... I remember when I was a little boy going every week to my aunt's house, Aunt Gail. She was not blood-related to us, but she was our aunt, and we were close to her, and she lived in Wheaton, and I went to school in Wheaton, so I'd have Boys Brigade, which is like Boy Scouts every week. And so I'd go over to her house after school because we lived 11 miles out and it was easier to stay there. And we'd have dinner together every week, and on her table was this little plastic thing that have, uh, it was like a, a playing card plastic thing where you've got a separator in the middle and then two piles, right? And it was a, a, a promise, uh, it, was, it was a pile of promises, scripture promises. And so you would take a promise from one side and you'd read it and then you'd put it on the other side. Well, you know that the promises are, would all be positive, you know. Um, tomorrow morning you'll get cupcakes. You know, it was that kind of thing only scripture. And, you know, none of the promises were God will judge the wicked. And this is the culture I grew up in. I grew up in evangelical culture, all right? And in evangelical culture, every day and every way, the world was getting better and better. And scripture proved it, you know? This is, it was just, it was optimism. It was cheerfulness. It was beauty. It was you know, everything was clean, right? And I was too young to know any better. And so, you know, when I would deal with my heart, which was not clean, 
I'd think, well, what's wrong with me? I'd go talk to my pastor, and he'd say, well, you just need to ask Jesus into your heart, and your heart will be clean. So I'd do it for the 10th time. And then I'd still find sin in my heart, and I'd think, what's wrong with me? You know, because here's this promise thing. And it's like, tomorrow we'll have cupcakes. And sometimes you'd hear people talking about sin, but it would be in whispers. You know, you'd kind of hide it, you know, you wouldn't, you know, nobody was really a sinner except some people went off the reservation every now and then, you know, and then, you know, you know, pretty soon they were back on the reservation. Nobody talked about that. Those were the times you didn't talk about, right? And so here I am at 62, and I'm still a product of my childhood. And so I open the Bible, and I have another psalm to preach, and I read the psalm, and I go, whoa, you know, where did that come from? You know? And every single time, the words are familiar. It's not that I haven't read the psalm. But listen, we have trouble with the Bible, and we have trouble with God. We, in the church, have trouble with the Bible, we have trouble with God, because it's not a promise box. There are many, many promises in it, but the promises always have their origin in the relentless knowledge of wickedness in this world that we suffer under. That's why they're promises. Um... You know, who hopes for what he already has, what he already sees? And so every one of these promises in the promise boxes of evangelicalism was cut off from the reason you needed the promise, right? The reason the forgiveness of God is precious to us is because we need it. But we don't want to think about needing forgiveness, you know? I don't want to think about needing forgiveness. You don't want to think about needing forgiveness. You just want to know that you have it. You know, it's something that you want to have the ability to tug on. And so, here we come again. And it's like every week I'm saying the same thing. Well, uh, you know, just purely from a number of words, if you look at our, at our chapter of Scripture this week, uh, what percent of the words, do we have it up? What percent of the words are about promises and what percent are about suffering? Or what percent are about sin and what percent are about righteousness? Or what percent are about hope and what percent about suffering? You know, any way you want to word it. So let's read it together, okay? This is the Word of God, and it's eternally true. Again, this is for the choir director. In other words, it's to be sung, as we're doing. And then it says a psalm of David. So this comes from David. And this is the Word of God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. 
They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? Where they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad. This is the word of the Lord. Now, what percentage would you give it? What percentage would be in that promise box? You know what I'm, you know what I'm asking, right? I mean, okay, nothing, unless you want to put in for the choir director a psalm of David, right? Nothing at the beginning, right? We all see this, right? And nothing in verse 1, the fool has said they're corrupt, they've committed abominable, abominable. I don't think abominable was in the prayer card case. Abominable? I don't think that word would be in there. No one not one, not even one, workers of wickedness not know who eat up my I don't think that would be there. You will be eaten up by the wicked. Like bread. They will devour you like bread. That wouldn't be in the promise box, right? Do not call on the Lord, great dread. Well, there we have in the second half of verse 5, for God is with the righteous generation. But listen, even where that occurs, it is comforting to the righteous, but even there, it's given as a way of showing the wicked that they're going to be whooped up on. In other words, it's a threat as much as a promise. You see that, right? Then you keep going. You would put to shame the... Well, I guess you could say that's a promise. I don't think it made it in the promise box. I don't think there was a card you took out that says God will put to shame those who are, you know, because that's not the kind of promise that you'd have in a promise box. Oh, right on. They're going to be put to shame because they've opposed me. You know, I don't think my Aunt Gail and Bible Church in Wheaton were, you know, being happy about that, right? The Lord is his refuge, yes, and then, verse 7, would that be a promise? I mean, certainly it's the most positive, right? But would it be a promise? Is that, is that in the promise box that you take out and you read it, and you're going to have a good day? Well, not quite, because it's longing. It's a lament and a plea. It's a supplication. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. It's, it's a hope, but it's not a promise. I mean, it's, it, it, it's implicitly a promise. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his captive people. So what it's saying is we are captive people. <laughs> and we're longing for God to restore us. And then it says, Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad. So that's really the promise, isn't it? 
that when God does restore us, that Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. All right, let's take it verse by verse. The psalm begins with an identity, and the identity is what? The identity is the fool. Now, who is this fool? Well, today the word fool, I think, is used merely to designate somebody who's profoundly stupid. You know, the fool's dumb. The fool's stupid. Really stupid. And there's a little bit of a moral content to calling somebody a fool. If you say somebody's stupid, it's not necessarily that they're sinful. It's just that they're dumb, right? But when you say they're a fool, you've added a condemnation morally to what you're saying. You know, they're stupid, but they're, they're, they're sinfully stupid, all right? But here when it says the fool... It's not just referring to somebody that doesn't think ahead and doesn't have the internal fortitude to postpone present gratification for future reward. It's not just talking about somebody who doesn't think before he acts and whose thinking wouldn't help him act anyhow because he's stupid. It doesn't get at what Scripture means here when it says a fool. This man's not simply stupid with a touch of sin. This man is profoundly evil. The Hebrew word here, do you, does anybody know what it is? The Hebrew word here is the word Nabal. <laughs> and so the Hebrew word Nabal is the, the husband of Abigail. And so Abigail's husband was what? He was a fool. Now, was Abigail's husband just stupid? No, no, no. He was perversely stupid. He was aggressively stupid. He was aggressively evil. He was an evil man. In 1 Samuel 25, 25, we read, Please, says Abigail, do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for his name is, so is he. All right, as his name is, so is he. He's Nabal and he is Nabal. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. So scripture here is speaking of the man who's not simply slack and stupid, but is intense and aggressive in his wickedness. The root of the word has to do with fading and withering and decaying. And so we're talking about a man who is morally decadent. Morally decadent. He is less than nothing. He's worthless. He's what Scripture refers to as a worthless man. He's not simply lazy and good, but he's hardworking and evil. Calvin refers to him as, quote, a perverse, vile, and contemptible person, unquote. And what of this fool? What are we told about this fool? Well, we're told this fool has said, in his heart there is no God. Note, he doesn't say it with his lips. He says it in his heart that there is no God. 
In other words, this fool doesn't so much walk up to you and say, I don't believe in God, as he walks up to you and says, Gesundheit, or God bless you, when you sneeze while in his heart he's thinking there is no God. The fool is the woman who speaks of God while thinking in her heart that God is nowhere and never helps and doesn't need to be feared. And so we're not talking here about Christopher Hitchens. Remember Christopher Hitchens? Remember how Doug promoted Christopher Hitchens all over the country by debating him? That's not who we're talking about here. Because Christopher Hitchens blabbed, 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 blabbed. He just made his lips run and run and run and run. He wrote in Vanity Fair. He wrote every perverse place he could. He, he said every wicked thing he could about the righteous. He attacked Mother Teresa 30 years ago in his writing. You know, This is Christopher Hitchens. And if you think that we're talking about Christopher Hitchens here, you're wrong. Because this fool has said in his heart there is no God. It's the mouth and the heart. Now, it may be that this fool is, is so, so stupid that he actually says out loud there is no God, you know? And generally, you can find a lot of really stupid people in a university community. You know, it takes education to get really stupid. And so you come into a university community, and you'll find people who are so stupid that they think they have to say what they think, right? And so they lose all the affection and all the trust, and every, everywhere they go, they're spewing there is no God, and so they don't get anything given to them because the common person is never going to trust somebody that actually says something like that, right? This fool is like most fools, never saying there is no God with their mouths. They leave it to their hearts, the seat of their will and the motivator of their actions. They are aggressively wicked, these fools. And it comes out of their heart. Now, what do they mean by there is no God? Well, the words there is aren't in the original Hebrew here. What it actually says is that the fool says in his heart, no God. There is no God makes it sort of an intellectual proposition. That's not the fool. The fool's just, he says in his heart, no God. No God. So the translators supplied the words there is, but it ain't there in the original. So he, he, this, this fool, he's the man who goes around denying his maker, his creator. He will not fear God. He won't obey God's laws. He hates God. And so no God owns his heart. His heart is owned by no God. All right? Can you hear him in his heart? No God. Likely, he admits God's existence, but he denies God's authority. No God, he says. Can you see how that's just a denial of authority? No God. You know, I had a picture of, you know, our home has been overrun with these, uh, completely overrun with these uh, 
don't know what you call them, these little people. Real little people. I don't know where they're all coming from. I can have Mary Lee put out some, some little people poison. <laughs> you know, they're all over the place in our house. They're coming out of the drain in the bathtub. <laughs> and you know what these little people do? I mean, they can have a big person who is their mother or father right in front of them. And you know what they do? They say, no father. They say, no mother. You know, their father and mother can be telling them to go back outside to eat the popsicle, for instance. I mean, I buy the popsicles, they eat them, right? And, and so we eat the popsicles outside so the, so the parents don't get their feet sticky walking on the floor, right? And so they're in and out of the door, and the door's open, and the hummingbird feeder's right by the door, and I'm tired of having to catch hummingbirds and putting them back outside, you know? So we have this rule. The door has to be shut, right? <laughs> you know? And these little people say, no father. And they say, no mother. And it's in them from the tiniest, tiniest. And you see them. They're going, no God. But to them, their father and mother is God. And so it comes out, no father, no mother. They won't obey. Their natural inclination is not to obey their father and mother. In other words, we're all born atheists. Why? Where did that come from? Well, no God. We deny our maker, we deny our creator, we won't fear God, we won't obey his laws, and so we hate him. No God, he says, and yet it's wishful thinking. He wishes there were no God. His intense desire is for there to be no God. And we have to ask the question at this point, which comes first? His utter stupidity and perversity or his rebellion? Which comes first? Are his actions evil and therefore he thinks no God? Or is his heart wicked and so his actions are wicked? You know, which is it that comes first? Which is the cart? Which is the horse? Well, we know that it starts with the corruption of original sin, right? We know that. And yet if you look at the fool, you look at the wicked, you see that both of them are matched you never have wicked actions without wicked hearts, right? You never have atheistical actions without an atheistical heart. And this is something we don't get because all of us think of ourselves and others as having basically good hearts. It, this is what it means to be an American. We all think that everybody has basically good hearts. We can't help it. It's just what our culture teaches us. And so we look at somebody and and this is where we've gotten this phrase, make good decisions and good choices from, right? Because when we think that all somebody's lacking is making good decisions, what we believe is that their heart is good, 
And they need to learn to insert their brain between their heart and their actions in a more helpful way so that we can really see who they are. You know what I mean? And so making the right choices is educators training in such a way that somebody can really show us how beautiful they really are. What a wonderful snowflake they are. Right? All you need to do is give a little more education to somebody, and then what you'll get out of them is what's naturally in their heart, which is good, right? And yet what we have to remember is the reason that people's actions are evil is because their heart is evil. The reason they act as if there is no God is because their heart is saying there is no God or simply no God. Their heart says no God. Their actions say no God. And so we have to... We have to weave back together the heart and the actions and realize that both are evil because you can't separate heart and actions. And this is why when we wrote our bylaws as a church, we put in a statement from uh, the early American uh, Presbyterian Book of Church Order that I love. And here's the statement. It's a preliminary principle. It says, godliness is founded on truth. Okay? No opinion can be either more pernicious, in other words, more aggressively evil, or more absurd, in other words, more stupid. No opinion can be more aggressively evil and stupid than the opinion that brings truth and falsehood on the same level and says it doesn't matter what a man's opinions are. On the contrary, we are persuaded that there is an inseparable connection between faith and practice, truth, and duty. Do you see this? We have to go back and see that out of the heart the mouth speaks. You don't say evil things, and you don't think evil things because your heart is good and you just have to learn to make the right choices. You say and do evil things because your heart is evil. And your heart is evil because Adam is your father. And Adam rebelled against good God. Adam said no God. Eve said no God. And ever since then, every one of our hearts has naturally said, no, God. And you see it in little children who run around the house looking and saying, no, father, no, mother, come here, Johnny. And they run away. No, God, no, father, no, mother. Imagine there's no heaven, there's no God, there's no hell. And John Lennon speaks for the entire world. And so we can't separate the heart and the actions, the heart and the mouth. They're integrated. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. Now at this point, we could be thinking that we're merely dealing with the proud university professor or student who's willing to stand against the masses of ignorant re religious people by identifying himself as an atheist. And he thinks, I don't need any of it, and I don't believe any of it. And he just says this, right? 
But this fool is not a university professor. He's not just the guy that lives in a university community and rides a recumbent bicycle and has a bumper sticker that says question authority or co-evolve. It's too easy, right? It's just too easy. They are corrupt, they have committed abominable deeds, and then Scripture says there is no one who does good. And that's a bit of a shocker. It's a bit of a wake-up call to us today. No one? Really? No one at all? Nobody? And this is, as I said earlier, the great obstacle to the salvation of men that we realize our desperate condition morally. We all think of ourselves as basically good, even and especially the atheist intellectual. But that is not God's judgment, and God's judgment is the only thing that matters. It is God himself who says there is no one who does good. And then to emphasize the accuracy of his declaration and judgment, the psalm continues, verse 2, the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. And so we realize that this is not because God got up in the morning and God was dyspeptic. You know, he'd had acid reflux all night. And so he said, there's no one who does good. That would be me. But that's not God. God is omniscient. That means God is all-knowing, all-seeing. There's no error with God, and there's nothing he doesn't know. And he has perspective. He sees the lay of the land. He sees the lay of our hearts because he looks down from heaven. He's, nothing blocks his judgment. He's looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. He's investigated the matter. And having investigated, his declaration is no. Verse 1b, there is no one who does good. And then verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. And if we didn't get it the first time, Scripture loves to repeat, it doesn't think that we're above being told things again and again. And so knowing that we're a little bit squirrely, weasley, we're going to try to get away from it, we don't want to hear it again, it comes back and tells us what we don't want to hear. And it says, they have all turned aside, together they've been corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Not even one. You know, as I was preparing to preach, I was thinking about, um, again, about my childhood, and about the fact that the most common way of sharing the gospel when I was growing up and when I went to Columbia Bible College and went down to University of South Carolina to witness with the navigators is what would you do? Well, you'd always, you'd always pull out, you know, there's none righteous, no, not one. You know, and you would pull it out with, you know, the guys in the fraternity and with the women in the... You'd go to the dorm room. You'd, you'd go to a shopping. You'd find pagans, and then you'd pull that out. There's none righteous, not one. 
And that was all you needed to say in order to have somebody ready to receive Jesus. You just said, there's none righteous, no, not one. And, and, and that does it. And the good thing about that is you don't have to show them how they aren't righteous. You don't have to talk about any specific sin. Just pull out God's general condemnation. Well, here it is. There is no one who does good, not even one. And so the Apostle Paul is quoting this in what he writes in Romans. All right? And so make no mistake, this is not just the man on the recumbent bicycle or the woman driving the Prius with the coeval bumper sticker we're talking about here, but this is the church member of a conservative Christian church who recites the Apostles' Creed from memory. And this is the person that God has judged when he says not even one. There is no hope for you. There is no hope for you. There's not one person here that there's any hope for. There's no hope for me. And so right here, all of a sudden the dividing line comes because there are some here that receive that as good news and some here who reject it as bad news. And what divides us are those who are proud and who want to believe that they have learned finally to make the right choices. And so they can continue to live in their world where they endlessly repeat in their heart, no God, no God, no God, no God. And if there's no God, God doesn't need to be feared and we don't need to live in obedience to him and we don't need to love his people and we don't need to look forward to his redemption. In other words, we don't need to be vulnerable. We don't need to be dependent. We don't need to be humble. We don't need to be meek. We don't need to mourn. We don't need to repent. And yet, blessed says Jesus are those who mourn because they will be comforted. Remember the Beatitudes. It's the very opposite of the way the world acts. The world acts as if Donald Trump is the one that has it made. He, he says, I don't need to be forgiven. I'm a winner. I'm intelligent. Donald Trump is not mourning. But the Bible says that it's those who mourn who will be comforted. But the proud man says, I don't need to be comforted, thank you. And you say to him, well, why not? He says, well, I'm not sad. It's interesting that it says they've all turned aside together, they've become corrupt. And uh, this word corrupt is a word that refers to uh, putrefaction, to stench. 
And so a good image for this is that animal that's lying in the middle of the road on a hot summer day, and it's been lying there long enough to just reek to high heaven. And that's what Scripture says about us. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. When a man does something right for the appearance of it, even then his motivation is wrong. So no, he doesn't do good. Doing good, he does it without faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so even if peer review causes you to do something that is right, but you do it because of peer pressure or because it's the standards of your work, but you don't do it by faith, trusting that God will reward you, doing it for the glory of God, it's still sin. Because why? Well, in Romans 14, it says, whatever is not from faith is sin. Anything you do that's right, that is not motivated by the glory of God, is sin. Because the entire world has been created to give glory to God. And so it doesn't matter how many things you do that are on the right side of good and bad decisions, if your motivation is to not stick out like a sore thumb, if your motivation is to not get fired, if your motivation is to not lose your marriage, if your motivation is for nobody to, to think about you, you just want to hide, right? All those motivations are not of faith, and therefore they're sin. Your calling is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Every person that's ever been created has been created to glorify God. And so anything you do that is right in the objective facts of the matter, but is wrong in the motivation, is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin, says Romans 14.23. And so God is right. There is no one who does good, not even one. Luther says this, quote, The fool speaks... There is not God, not with the mouth, gestures, appearance, and other external signs, for in such respects he often boasts before the lovers of God that he knows God, but in heart, that is, in his inward sentiments. He has no faith. Always remember that the Psalms are written within and concerning the people of God, the children of Israel. This is another thing that's just shaking me. Every time I preach on, on one of the Psalms, all the commentators just keep saying, this is not for the pagans. This is God's covenant people that are being spoken of here. And so this is the church. You know, David wrote this psalm for the people of God, the children of Israel, God's covenant people. We are God's covenant people. This is the church. This is our psalm. And God looks at us and he says, there's none righteous, not one, not even one. He says, our deeds are evil and we're putrefied. They have all turned aside. Together they've been corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Verse 4, do, do all the workers of wickedness not know? who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. And this is a very interesting thing. Last night when I left here, I went home and I talked to a pastor uh, of a church. And it was, it was very interesting to talk to him 
um, I've talked to two pastors this week, and in both cases, in their churches, what's going on is the wicked people in the church are eating the righteous like bread. Now, I get to watch you eat bread. Because I serve you communion, right? And so I watch you, and you grab a piece of bread off the loaf, and the people that I really like are the ones that are just like aggressive in eating, you know? And sometimes, some of you, you come out with this honking piece of bread. I mean, it's humongous, you know? And I watch you, and it seems like the bread is conspiring against you. You grab it, and the whole loaf comes out of the loaf, you know? And then I think to myself, now what are they going to do with that, you know? So I generally take the cup, and I shove it closer to your chin, because I know when you stick it in, you're going to have a whole bunch of wine on it, you know? And, and, and I don't want it to go on your but. You know, I have to worry about that. Some of you don't, you know. And so um, here's an additional thing. An additional thing is that the Bible here tells us that it's the nature of the wicked to devour the righteous as they would devour a piece of bread, as they would eat bread. It's not just that the wicked want to give themselves to wickedness and in their hearts say there is no God, no God. But it's also that they hate the righteous and they devour them like bread. They eat them like bread. And the church today is filled with people that hate the righteous. It's filled with people that hate the righteous. And... You know, in a huge number of cases, it's just simply pride. Where somebody in their heart is saying, no God, not in their lips, they're repeating, the, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven. But when it comes to somebody being righteous in the church, they're always doing what? Well, they're eating them. And how do they eat them? With their mouth. They pull them down to their level. As a matter of fact, I pull you down to my level. You pull me down to your level. We pull each other down. We eat each other. And that's why in Scripture there's so many exhortations to love one another sincerely, to forgive one another, to be kind to one another, to uh, consider others better than ourselves. Because it is our natural tendency to be jealous of the godly and to pull them down and to devour them who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. And of course, when you're eating up the righteous with gossip and slander and attacks, you're not calling upon the Lord, you know? You can't do both at the same time, right? You either are meek and humble and you mourn over your sin and you wait for the redemption of God, or you devour the righteous and you don't call on the name of the Lord and in your heart you say, no God, no God, no God, right? Do all the workers of wickedness not know? Verse 4, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. You think about the condition of these people who will not call upon the name of the Lord. In their heart there is no God, and they refuse to call upon God. And you think about the lonely days and the lonely nights. They won't call on God. 
when they have a terrible dream and remember their sins, they won't call on God. And lonely days and lonely nights. Such forsakenness. Such God-forsakenness. Such terrible lives and such terrible deaths. And this is horror. Verse 5, they know it's horror because it says, There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. In other words, these who say no God in their hearts tremble and shake in their trembling. They're controlled by fear, and their blasphemies are their fears speaking. They slander the righteous, they devour them like bread, they tremble and they blaspheme because of the horror of their lives. They sit in church, and you can't see their face, but remember a few weeks ago I told you I see their face. And there is no fear of God. There's hatred. There's anger. It says, verse 5, they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. Verse 6, you would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Now, how do you put to shame the counsel of the afflicted? Well, what they do is they mock. You remember them mocking Jesus on the cross when they said about him, you know, he, he, you say you trust in God, let him deliver you. If, you if, if, if he's your father, let him deliver you. You say you trust in God. Who, who hit you? Who was it that just hit you? You don't even know who just hit you. And then remember, he's between the two thieves on the cross, and one of them says, why don't you help us? And the other one says, don't you, don't you fear God, you know? And this is the condition of them. They, they shame the counsel of the afflicted. In other words, when you're suffering because of your righteousness and faith, all right, they shame you. They make fun of you, they mock you, they slander you. They devour you like bread, and they lampoon your counsel, your wisdom, your advice. They just make fun of you. The Lord is his refuge. While they're making fun of you, Jesus entrusted himself to his father. <laughs> and you just imagine all the people that mocked Jesus on the cross, and therefore God has highly exalted him and has given him a name that's above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is my wife's favorite fantasy. Is just naming the names of those who will bow the knee and confess that he is Lord. Starting with the soldiers, starting with the thief next to him that mocked him. 
Jesus is the victor. And all that's left is the cleanup operation. He has defeated death, the final enemy. And so the, 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 the psalm ends with this. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. So, listen. Again and again in the psalms, what we have is a choice. And the choice is real simple. We can either be comforted by the psalm or we can be angered by it, right? There's no, there's no third way. Either these psalms comfort me or they anger me. There's no third way. And if they anger me, I'm going to come up with all these perverse ways of just sort of not listening, you know, and, and, and explaining it away and, and relativizing it and patronizing it. And, and, and listen, the one thing you absolutely have to do if you're going to wish the Psalms away is you have to minimize the conflict of this life. You can't see in your children a battle between heaven and hell. You can't see in your community a battle between heaven and hell. You can't see in your marriage a battle between heaven and hell. You can't see in your computer a battle. You can't see it in the articles you read. You can't see it in the classroom. You can't see it in the work environment. You can't see it even at the roundabout. You can't even know yourself. Because to know yourself sees the battle between faith and unbelief. And so everywhere conflict will be denied. If you won't see the conflict that is consuming the world in front of you right now, and you won't see it as a conflict between the righteous and the wicked, between those that God has snatched out of their wickedness and given them faith, if you won't see this world as a conflict between them and the wicked, and if you won't see that the wicked are on the broad path and that everybody finds that path, and that there are only a few who are on the path to heaven and honor God. And that even their honoring God is the result of God yanking them out of the pit they were sunk in, setting their feet on a high place and giving them faith. And they're a bunch of idiots. If you can't see these things, and if you don't want to see them, and if you spend your life denying that this is the reality of the world that you live in, then this text calls you a fool. Because you are denying that Scripture properly diagnoses the world that we live in. Scripture is relentless about the conflict. And Scripture is relentless in saying our only hope is that God will come and rescue us. And that's why it ends with, oh, oh, oh. And can you enter into that word from the psalmist, from the prayer? Oh, can your heart enter into that? Or is your heart saying, no God, no God, no God, no God? You say, well, my heart isn't saying no God, but it's not saying oh. I say, well, those are the only two choices. Either your heart's saying no God, no God, no God, or your heart's going, oh! You know something? Yesterday I was talking to a pastor, and he used to be in this church. He's talking to somebody here in this church. He didn't tell me, and I didn't ask him who it was. He was saying that somebody from this church 
had gone away on vacation or work or something, and they said it was such a relief to get away from this church because it was like stuff stopped being so heavy. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, sin is heavy. Repentance is heavy. Love is heavy. Real love. Now, we're not talking about John Lennon. Real love is heavy. You know, preaching is heavy. Uh, would you agree with me? The psalm I've been preaching on is heavy, right? What am I supposed to do? You know, get out a kazoo? You know, I can't do it. Okay? So I want to read you a psalm, which the end of our psalm reminded me of, and I can't wait until our musicians get to this psalm and write this psalm. Because this psalm is my heart when I'm living by faith. And it's not going to come down the pike for quite a while because it's Psalm 137. All right, so we got a lot of psalms to write the music to before we get to 137. But listen to this. By the rivers of Babylon, there we... Now, you know what Babylon is for the people of God. Babylon's their captivity. You and I in America today don't live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. We don't live in God bless America. We live in Babylon. We are in the Babylon captivity in this country, right? Everybody agree with me. And listen to this. God's people were in Babylon. They were in captivity. And this is the prayer. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. For there, our captors demanded of us songs. Isn't it something how the wicked always want the righteous to sing? Remember Saul with David? They demanded our songs. And our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Have you ever noticed how the wicked always want to go back to the hymns of their childhood church? You ever noticed that? You ever noticed how much of Bob Dylan's lyrics are from Scripture? You ever noticed that? They always want the songs of the righteous. For there our captors demanded of his songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Nope. 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 Ain't gonna sing. Nope. Not gonna sing for you. I would rather my right hand be cut off. I would rather my tongue be cut out than that. My harp is my harp is hung. I will not sing until I'm back in Zion. That's what I thought of in this last verse. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his captive people 
Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be what? Comforted. Father, would you please vindicate your honor? Father, would you return? Father, would you give joy to your people? Would you give us hope in the glory of Jesus Christ? Would you give us submission to the division that you have created by your Holy Spirit in calling some and allowing others to go their own way? Father, help us not to take lightly your dispensations, your decrees, your predestination, your election. And help us, Father, to go into the world and to plead with those who are yet your enemies to be reconciled to you, that they may join us in the coming joy when the King of kings and the Lord of lords is revealed and his people are redeemed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.